of the Qarawiyin podcast. I'm your host, Sara, and I'm joined today by my two co-hosts, Aisha and Amina. And how are you ladies doing today? Assalamualaikum, Sara. We're good. Alhamdulillah. How are you? I'm good, alhamdulillah. And I'm very excited to introduce today's guest. Um, we're joined by the lovely Iman, Ms. Moody. Iman, how are you? Thank you for joining us. I'm great, alhamdulillah. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, so are we have oh, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna have you. Yeah, I'll go ahead and briefly introduce Iman, but we're gonna have a really interesting conversation about a lot more, you know, about her work and her background. Um, but just to briefly introduce, Iman is the president of Tunic, which is an ethical clothing brand applying holistic Islamic ethics to its sheep to shop manufacturing cooperative. And she graduated from Harvard with an honors BA in social and political theory and Islamic history and received her MPhil in classical Islamic history and culture from the University of Cambridge. She writes and works on Ottoman North Africa, Islamic law, and sacred anti-capitalism, all of which sounds really amazing, mashallah. So Iman, go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself and also the story behind Tunic. Yeah, um, thank you guys so much. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. Um, I mean, I think the, the bio was fine, but just a little of my personal yani, background. I grew up in North Carolina in the U.S., which Americans know is in the South. And, um, you know, uh, I still have a lot of love in my heart for the South of America, even the, for the South of the United States of America, <laughs> you, you know, even though everyone uh, is familiar with the fact that people are sometimes racist on an interpersonal level, people are usually very polite and nice. So it's a very strange dichotomy to have grown up in. Um, and my parents are both originally from Tunisia. Um, when they've actually both moved back there now. I know a lot of people, the people find that really interesting because probably a lot of listeners also maybe come from an immigrant background and maybe their parents are thinking about or dreaming of, you know, going back to the homeland someday. So my parents actually did it and they love it, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, as as you said, I graduated from undergrad a few years ago in, in 2018 and Tunic started in the spring of 2018 um, when I was um, planning to graduate. It really started as something small, like we had no big, I did not expect for it to last this long, subhanAllah. <laughs> and um, it was like something to do and explore because I had this mandatory deferral period. I like did this program with law school. I'm attending law school in Chalna, which is a graduate program in the U.S. And I did this like early application thing where you take two years, you get in early and you take two years off after you graduate. So I had this time, subhanAllah, and and really I would not have done something so strange and out of the, um, you know, out of the path I thought it would take if it wasn't for those two years. So alhamdulillah um, for that time that I was kind of forced into. I mean, the original idea really was something very small. It was like we knew some craftswomen in Tunis and we thought that their embroidery was incredible and we thought that um, it wasn't really known around the world or it wasn't being sold anywhere around the world. So we thought like we'll just throw up like an Etsy shop for them and we'll kind of help them take, you know, better product photos and help them with the design process a little bit to create something that people would like to buy in the U.S. or in Europe. Um, 
and you know that's it and we actually had a different name at first it was called Munawara which is um, you know um, uh, she is radiant in Arabic and it was just like all about these women's crafts and the embroidery process and then once we started I mean it was for me no question that like you know if we're gonna do this it's gonna be done the right way and I had no idea what that would mean actually how difficult that would be before we started um, and I think if I did know I would, we wouldn't have started this project because it was subhanallah I mean challenges you know every single step was some of the most difficult things the most difficult things that we've ever had to do me and my mom uh, who's my business partner and my sister as well who's also involved um, so it really started with, with small vision and then we um, once we had to get into the weeds of things we had to ask start asking questions around okay so we want these women to embroider where do we get fabric from um, and then we, where does fabric come from and how is fabric made and how are dyes achieved and where do fibers come from and all these questions we spent a long time um, just researching that and um, you know experiencing successive waves of just shock and uh, you know really disgust at learning what goes on in the textile industry um, but then the counterbalance to that is experiencing a lot of awe and beauty when we were driving around Tunisia in our, in our car, just me and my mom and my sister with like snacks and we just show up to like random towns and go from door to door asking, do you know any weavers? Do you know anyone who spins their own thread? Do you know anyone who does natural dyes? And meeting people that way, you know, it was like this twin contrast between um, the incredible miracle of people who work with natural materials with their hands and the incredible violence of the industrial um, textile production model. Um, seeing those two in contrast, it just lit a fire under all of us and we were like, this needs to change. Uh, and we have the opportunity to you know, build something here that can model a different way of producing clothing, inshallah. It's, it's always like I come from that, you know, I read all these like revolutionary thinkers and whatever classes I took in undergrad and uh, they definitely had an influence on me in addition to obviously our Islamic ethics around viewing the creation as a holistic um, uh, a piece of nature that all of which reflects God. So, you know, bringing those things together, we tried to kind of design from the ground up something where we can produce clothing, you know, we always say from sheep to shop, so it's like literally from the sheep, the clothes, the, the fiber off of their back, spinning it into thread, um, weaving it into fabric, dyeing it with plants and herbs, and cutting and sewing that, um, all of that being done by hand, um, and in Tunisia, in people's homes, so we have a distributed decentralized production model where it just moves from people's homes to homes. There's no centralized factory or anything like that. Everyone owns their own means of production. And then we share profits, um, you know, quarterly or at the end of every year when we have profits and they're distributed uh, among the artisans who worked on those items. Um, alhamdulillah, it's been the best thing I've ever done. It's been the biggest blessing to be able to, to work on it. And uh, I find so much beauty in it, alhamdulillah.
That is just such a beautiful story, Iman, subhanAllah. It's, first of all, I really kind of relate to what you're saying. And I think it's a great lesson for all of us to hear that sometimes amazing, big things come out of just small ideas. And hearing that literally you thought this would be an Etsy shop. And now, subhanAllah, like I go on the Tunic website and I'm seeing all of these amazing content, not just of things that you're selling, but how you're actually educating people about the whole process of what goes into producing our clothes and why it's so important that we that we value this and that we protect protect the the, the, the crafts and the talents of people in, in, in different countries through our consumption. It's just so, so amazing, subhanAllah. And to be honest, actually, I'm going to mention that part of the site, the, the Learn tab, because I really loves that I've, I've been on the tunic site like a couple of times mashallah since it started and always you know i go on the shop tab right <laughs> i want to see what i can get but then when i looked at the learn tab it was just an amazing insight into actually what goes on behind the products that then you're seeing and particularly something that really was i found fascinating was your breakdown of your costs of um how i think it was one of the jackets um you can correct me if i'm wrong is 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 made and um, how much each stage of production actually costs. And first of all, mashallah, obviously that's a credit to you guys as being uh, such a transparent organization that you're actually upfront about these things before people even ask. But then subhanAllah, it was such an education to me because I'm looking at all of these processes and sometimes we don't think about the, the fact that garments go through all of these processes. We know it in the back of our minds, but we don't look at something and think that, oh, this must've cost this and this must've cost that. And when you go through it and you see that actually all of these costs for all of these different stages are very reasonable you realize that the fact that we are how much must the people who make other clothes other products that we get be being paid in order to buy the you know ridiculously cheap clothes or fabrics or whatever else that we that we get what ultimately must they be getting for it if this is really you know what it costs and to, to be to be paid a fair price yeah, and that's what I admire about like you talking about the process of like how you guys went about figuring out like step by step production and then sales and then also bringing profits back to like the people making the clothes. And I, I've watched like videos also about like how the clothes are produced. There's so many opportunities to like cut corners and you wouldn't even be considered cutting corners like in the clothing industry. It would just be like considered efficiency and like, you know, that's like you know, so like supposedly like smart business thinking is just like finding the cheapest mm -hmm. way to do everything. Um, but you guys did not do that. And it, you know, there's a lot of like intentionality and like consciousness about each step of the process, even the packaging and everything. Um, and I've had these conversations like a lot with people lately, which is, it's interesting how like environmental consciousness is not, it's, it's kind of a fad in the sense that people are, it's very popular to talk about it. And it's also the trends in that whole conversation have been changing. Like before it was, at least when I was growing up, it was like recycle and you will change the world. And now it's like, you know, corporations are destroying the earth. So my recycling doesn't matter. Um, but it's, I feel like it's ironically pushing people away from thinking about um, personal responsibility because like, yeah, we should be aware of like where environmental degradation is actually, you know, what the sources of it are but i feel like we're also removing ourselves from the process from the conversation um so why do you think iman that it is actually important for us um as muslims but also just generally as humans who are participating in the you know global economy um why should we be conscious of what we consume and how it's produced um that's such a good question there's there's so much to say and i think for me like so much of it 
hinges on um, an, an Islamic worldview rather than uh, like a materialist worldview on activism because, you know, we don't as Muslims look at um, actions purely based on the net result of what they produce uh, in the physical world. Because sure, you know, it's negligible for you to um, buy your fruit wrapped in plastic from the grocery store versus, you know, um, you know, wrapped in paper from farmer's market. The external impact is not going to solve climate change. But um, that's why, you know, we as Muslims, not only do we obviously believe in individual accountability um, in front of God, but also that when we take actions externally, it cultivates an internal reality as well. And, you know, um, we see that constantly through, you know, ways that we worship, um, the, the, the fact that salah is a physical act that we move our body through that then cultivates the internal reality that allows our, our hearts to be, you know, in line with um, the type of um, spirit that we hope to create, inshallah, and, and, you know, may Allah allow us all to do that. So these sorts of actions have an impact on our hearts, uh, and that is extremely important, if not more important than the um, net external result that each individual would be able to create. So it, that's one reason. I mean, I think when you start to do these things, you will feel a difference in yourself. And even myself, like, you know, I, I always worry that when I talk about these things, people feel like I'm judging them. So I constantly try to remind people like, 100% I was a fast fashion shopper. I was, you know, someone who did not care about single-use plastics or whatever um, environmental um, concern you could bring up. Like, yeah, I would theoretically care, but um, I was not, it did not connect in my heart that this is something extremely important. And, you know, just spending all the time that I've spent in the cooperative with natural materials in artisans' homes or seeing them work with their hands has completely changed my soul and my heart and my eye for like what I see as beauty and now I'm, I'm like literally I'm like physically repulsed by like plastic things or by like polyester fabrics like I, I actually can't bear to be around them there is a spiritual reality under these things um, you know and when we live our lives in accordance with our values there is um, a deep truth that underlies that and that's you know, only a benefit to ourselves and allows us to um, live our lives more fully as Muslims in, in all aspects of what we do. And the second piece of that being that it allows us to see the um, miracle of the creation of Allah. I mean, like, <laughs> I felt that so strongly. I'm, I'm almost constantly in awe when I look at, like, sheep and I see the wool coming off their back and I, and I see how this is an intentionally created world. And when we're so distant um, so disconnected from what Allah has created for us, we can't reflect on his signs. And like, you know, I, I as well, my mom was just saying this the other day that so many of us on the team, every time we read the Quran, we read it even differently now, having gone through this experience of having the blessing of spent so much time with, with artisans and with natural materials. You know, when God calls us to reflect on his signs around the world, 
Um, I always found beauty in those verses, but they, they really impact me differently now because I, I have spent time with those materials in my hands and I have seen how they transform and I've felt how much of a blessing they are. When we're so disconnected from the means of production, where our food comes from, where our clothing comes from, um, the impact that we're having in our cars, in our homes, the, our air conditioners, whatever you can think of, we are disconnected from the signs of God. So there, there's so many reasons for us in particular as Muslims to care about this. But to talk about, you know, the actual impact, guys, like, it really does have an impact. Like, even, like, uh, you can organize your communities. You can, if you organize your family, um, if you organize your place of business, like, sure, we can say, like, oh, it's corporations that are doing this, not consumers. But um, corporations are... Um, all run by human beings and any business that you work in you can create a policy change um, whether it starts small or big like you are creating this is how movements are created this is how revolutions happen in the world we've seen it time and time again um, it's you know uh, always come from mass amounts of people mobilizing so, uh, you know, of course it will have an impact in Shalna in the long term. I'm just, I just tried to also speak to, you know, those factors that are unseen and that are uh, so important as well. Um, coming off of that, I'm really glad that you mentioned the idea of accountability because the concept of accountability and, you know, Hisba has always been something quite central to Muslim communities. Uh, in the marketplace especially because, you know, um, there were actual people appointed, the muhtasibs, to ensure that businesses were running in the correct way and in accordance with Islamic law and honouring the rights of both the seller and the buyer. And, you know, something I was reading quite recently about, you know, in the Ottoman era, they had like a guild system. And this was used to help regulate the marketplaces and, you know, for quality control and also for ensuring the rights of the locals. And, you know, they had guilds for like everything from like milk to meat. And in Ottoman Jerusalem, especially, they were really, you know, bread was like a staple for them. And they had like a very solid, a very well functioning um, guild for bread. And they had to ensure that, you know, they were ha um, fresh baked bread every day, made within like um, a specific time frame with a specific flour and using a specific method. And there was a quota that they had to meet and to ensure that everyone in the community was afforded their right to bread. And anything less would not be acceptable. And these standards were firstly there to strive for a san, firstly, and also to honor the community's rights to purchase good produce. And there's this anecdote where, on one occasion, the bakers, for some reason, they just decided, you know, let's stop making bread today. And this, you know, just wasn't enough bread for the people in the marketplace. And when the inspector came, he was livid because this is a travesty, right? Like the people need their bread. And he went, you know, weeping to the Qadi that, that the treacherous bakers who, you know, just weren't baking bread anymore. And he demanded that they'd be punished. And they were actually summoned to the court in front of jurists and given like a very harsh warning and made it pledge that they would not do this ever again. And this sounds quite, this sounds a lot just, you know, for bread. But the essential message is that, you know, there are standards that need to be met and that the rights of people have to be honoured. Um, as you know people who uh, buy and sell and that you will be held accountable if you do fall short and this accountability maybe we don't have it you know on a very personal level now because we don't really have like a khilaf or anything but you know from a theological angle we will be held accountable as muslims not today but on you know the final day we will be and so every deed and every action and every choice that we make we will have to answer for it and this should undergird every one of our actions and you know we want to live in a way that is most pleasing to allah and you know 
how can we you know especially with us who are so privileged in the west how we can't get away with taking part in you know perpetuating these violent systems where we do um you know purchase products made in sweatshops and you know even you know produce products that aren't meeting the standards and just dishonoring the rights of people and think that you know we will not be held accountable for it and then as you said there is a spiritual um part of it too and like a metaphysical angle we have baraka in islam right and you know this is like an attachment of divine goodness to a thing where you know unexplainable increase in benefits because we don't really know how to explain but you know this will be linked to our obedience to allah and his law and do we genuinely believe that you know something that is um you know obtained through a means that is less than halal or you know in like an immoral way will be shouted allah's blessings and without Allah's blessings, things like our time and our income and our wealth and, you know, our efforts have, they're, they're empty to be fair. And, you know, I feel like for this reason, we, especially us, because we have so many options, we have to look at what we consume and we, you know, we can do a lot better. I was just going to add slightly that to that beautiful reflection, because I am also fascinated by the system of muhtasibs and um, guilds and marketplace regulation and it was something that I actually really wanted to spend a long time researching in the early days of Tunic because the fundamental question for me was like okay you know I very much put off by uh, business and capitalism in general and I don't see uh, like beauty or morality there I think a lot of us feel that way in the in the modern world um, and yet we know that, you know, our tradition is one that, you know, the Prophet ﷺ himself engaged in trade and, um, you know, the blessings of, um, you know, a moral um, trader or business person, you know, are uh, discussed in, in many hadiths and uh, also in, mentioned in the Qur'an as something that God has made permissible for you. And even metaphors of trade and business are frequent throughout the Qur'an and sometimes even stand in for metaphors of justice. Even the question of scales, like the scales of justice, ultimately come from the scales of a trader when they weigh something out for you and give you a fair price for it. So it's like a fundamental principle for us as Muslims and for human, for all of humanity. And it's clear that like people have traded and done you know, business and commerce with each other for so many years. And it's only in the modern period that it's become this grotesque a thing that is destroying uh, the planet and uh, our communal ties and our relationship to nature and our relationships to each other um, and created such massive wealth disparities and, and all of the sources of injustice that we know of. So I, I, I love to study that history. It was really important to me and to, I think it's really important for us as Muslims to reconnect to those ideas. Um, and another thing I wanted to say about what you said, Amina, is because I, I see this so often on Twitter. I know Twitter is not representative of like Muslim discourse, but I see people on Twitter saying like, oh yeah, you know, an Islamic economy would just be like, just like capitalism, but, but, but without like interest and like alcohol would be haram and like, that's it. And, <laughs> but like, like free trade, free trade, free trade. And, um, you know, like, yes, that's the case. You know, there are certain hadiths that refer to, like, how the price is set by God. and uh, uh, But at the same time, what you were just talking about and the entire history of Mahdasibs <clears throat> and the entire history of guilds also refers to a system of regulations <laughs> and, <laughs> and oversight and that, you know, the market doesn't just self-correct 
but that they're right that people have rights and there need to be ways of um, balancing um, and confining you know the business person who does have the capacity to you know abuse the rights of customers abuse the rights of their workers and to abuse the um, the earth and, and the soil and water that we all share so I just wanted to like extract that point from what you just summarized for us because I think it's really important. No, that is, of course. And also before it was very localized, they're worried about the rights of the locals. You know, that's something that is completely dismissed at the moment because, you know, it's it's just you know, it's a very global thing at the moment. But rights of the people goes from, you know, what they produce, but also things like appropriation, you know, what is indigenous to that land. And right now you have lots of big corporations who just, you know, profit off little, you know, very niche things from little communities and just, and they don't profit from it at all. Uh, and the guild system, from what I, from the limited things that I know about it, that it was very much focused on the rights of these people um, in a religious way, in an economic way as well. And subhanAllah, that is, it's very important to, you know, um, understand what these people want rather than what, you know, the world needs in that case. Right, subhanAllah. And also in an environmental sense. I mean, I know, for example, many Muhtasib text manuals around <clears throat> how they apply um, regulations. It would be like, you know, bakers have to put uh, filters on their ovens to not produce too much, um, you know, uh, black smoke in the air for people because people have the right to clean air and people have the right to clean waterways. You can't dump things in water. And this is one of the things that happens on such a disturbing scale in the fashion industry is the pollution of waterways um you know another externalized cost but just like dumping all of these toxic dyes and um processing chemicals and laundering chemicals into this is what you're talking about in terms of localized like it, it'll just be dumped into um the riverways of usually like muslim majority countries guys you know just to oh, just yeah. to tr <laughs> trying to get the listeners to care in particular about this issue yeah. is, it really affects muslims but anywhere in the world that it is dumped you know in people's mm -hmm. river ways that they rely on is is totally unacceptable so exactly what you were saying 100 percent. yeah it's so fascinating to hear just how much all of these considerations are already a part of not just of course Muslim civilization but obviously here we're talking about Islamic history how some of these things were mentioned how people thought about the impact on the environment and the rights of other people and particularly with you know kind of as Sarah was saying earlier with environmentalism kind of being a little bit of a fad now it's something people you know we know about but I think we don't necessarily we aren't able to draw the lines between our actions and the results that we're seeing which is crazy because we know that climate change is an existential threat it is something that is going to affect our generation particularly and definitely all the other generations to come so and, and it's a shame that kind of going back to what you were saying iman we've reached the point where our disconnect from the environment because of the exploitation that has just been completely normalized through these production processes it's something that we it, we're, we're, we're disconnected from, we don't see these these links in the way that we ought to. Ultimately, this is a man-made crisis that is fed directly by consumerism. And if we're ever going to kind of even try and kind of scale back the damage that we're doing, we need to evaluate our approach to that and how we consume and how we produce. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I mean, if I would just say one more thing, it's that like, um, the solution is 
I think I think the problem is a matter of scale, right? It's the fact that we're producing at such a large scale. We've globalized supply chains. We've, um, you know, everything has become so massive. You know, agricultural business. We lose biodiversity in farming when we have huge farms that just have, um, you know, monocrop farms. Or and the same thing in fashion. The same problem. And so the solution is actually to do things at smaller scale and. I think that should be really empowering for people to hear is that like being part of the solution means how can you be even just a single person producer of anything, food or um, any kind of textile um, art or, you know, any sort of alternative need that people need, that people rely on in our communities. So I know the problem feels like too big, but the solution is actually to scale the problem down. And so to bring it back to the human level rather than the mechanized level. And all of us can do that. Yeah, I love that you put it that way because it, it does, again, it brings it back to like, um, you know, like what can I do as an individual? Because it's one thing to sit here and complain about like the like dangers of global capitalism. It's another thing to then take the next step to deal with it ourselves. Um, but yeah, it's just, there's a lot to say here because for one thing, I mean, I was talking about like the, there's concepts that we have like baraka, like, you know, because um, we have, I think everybody, you know, even non-Muslims know that Muslims eat halal, but I think a lot of Muslims don't even know that we're supposed to eat halal and tayyib. And when we get into talking about like, okay, what constitutes tayyib? And if we apply that to not just our food consumption, but all of the goods that we consume, we realize that there's a lot, you know, a lot of risks that we're running in our consumption and a lot of um, opportunities for I don't even know what the opposite of baraka would be, but it, for, you know, bad vibes to enter the things that we're consuming and for obviously like very, you know, tangible harm be- taking place in the process, like environmental degradation, like people being exploited for their labor. Um, but also when we start talking about like, okay, the solutions and everything, I think it's very common in Muslim discourse on Twitter and off Twitter for people to talk about like economic capabilities and Islamic econ as part, like a big piece of the solution to um, you know, the, like uh, all of these conversations about like Omar revival and renaissance and like lifting the Muslim world and like even the Muslim diaspora out of like our current issues and everything. But um, it sometimes it just really goes as far as people thinking that like, okay, if we participate in the global capitalist system, if we start, you know, running successful businesses that just that emulate whatever current business practices are popular, our status quo, then, you know, that's how we um, you know, if we just financialize all of our own institutions, then yeah, we'll make it, we'll just be part, you know, we'll be the next sharks in the system. Um, but you know, this, like, it, it is kind of us just like taking the reins of like, I don't know, this carriage that's like destroying the planet. And I think that's what a lot of Muslims see, like, you know, the future of, um, like su- a successful economic future of the Ummah is just participating, um, in capitalism, not, you know, approaching it from our, um, I know we always say like Islamic worldview, but really it, it's not even this like vague prescription to like be de- decent people, but it's in the fiqh. You know, there's like very explicit prescriptions about like what is okay to do, like what is not okay to do in um, like business transactions, but also, yeah, again, even in just our consumption. Um, but in, you know, in that vein, we do still see a lot of Muslims starting businesses, um, a lot of Muslims starting fashion businesses. Like I see a new one popping up on Instagram pretty much every day. Um, talking about modest fashion and there's it's very much marketed using that spiritual element that it's islamic fashion it's muslim fashion um but it's you know when you like kind of dig deeper as much as you can like depending on how transparent they are into like production processes even the materials they use um the whole tayyib aspect of it is you know maybe hadad in the sense of like 
covers your aura, but then it kind of stops there. Um, so I want to ask you also, Iman, how does this, you know, all of these things that we're talking about, all these principles, how does it affect um, how you understand and like how um, any critiques that you would have or even good things that you would have to say about um, this growing popularity and just the growth of the modest fashion industry in general? Uh, SubhanAllah, you've raised so much. I, the important, important stuff there. I don't like to be too negative, so I try. <laughs> I, we gotta be realistic, I, though. <laughs> yeah. I try to give people hope, but I, I actually just to tell you what I feel in my heart. Like I actually think that the vast majority of the Islamic fashion industry is uh, an, an, an embarrassment to Islam. Like it's just uh, not uh, what I think our religion can offer the world. Um, and you know i i understand like i i understand there's there's an immediate need right like muslim women today are um you know working they're living in the west or fashion styles are changing um they want to have certain types of clothing immediately right away and it, and it even might have an impact on their on their careers their financial stability or even their safety to be able to dress a certain way and so, like, I understand that. And I also understand that so many of Muslim countries are really struggling with um, issues of poverty. And, um, you know, it is, of course, like a privilege to be able to talk about, uh, like, slowing down your business and taking certain risks with your business that might work and might not work. Um, and to be able to be okay with your business failing in order to uphold a certain um, you know, standard. I understand, of course, that that is a privilege. Um, at the same time, if we look at the the full picture, um, you know, I just think our religion has so much more to offer the world than simply replicating uh, the same patterns that have created so much destruction. You know, literally unprecedented that humanity has destroyed our planet, and human like we have polluted our own water and we have destroyed our own uh air it's unbreathable like a million people die every year from air pollution um unprecedented the destruction that modern capitalism has caused so the idea that muslims should like replicate that with sort of an islamic aesthetic you know wrapped around it like just put a hijab on it um is you know i, I think it's i think it's shameful and it's not worthy of what our tradition can offer the world we could actually be part of the solution to this crisis. We, we could show people that there's another way to be and live. Um, we have so much more beauty to create and offer in the world. And I know a lot of Muslims do actually care about this and are working and have been working for like long before me for, for decades and for, and for centuries all over the world in the West and also in um, historically Muslim countries. So, um, you know, of course, I want I want to recognize all of them first and foremost but um you know i i would love to see muslims focus on that and i totally get like the rhetoric of like oh our countries are struggling with poverty so what we need to do is just make a ton of money and then we can compete with the west um because you know the west is successful and capitalism clearly works to that point in particular i would say two things which is that um you know even putting aside all of the destruction, the environmental degradation 
and saying like, look, it's not even financially sustainable to destroy your own planet. Like that doesn't make economic sense, even putting that aside. You know, historically and up until this day, uh, if we're particularly talking about the U.S., for example, the U.S. has actually never proven its economic model without relying on the direct subjugation of other people's uh, in terms of cheap or free labor or in terms of extraction of natural resources, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not like it's not like Europe and America are just like in a bubble working on, you know, doing capitalism and they're getting rich. Like their system directly relies on the poverty in our countries. And uh, that is the only way that they have produced the massive amounts of wealth that they've produced. And by the way, it's like even look within the U.S. and you see so much poverty, like devastating poverty. Um, So it's not even we shouldn't even be talking about the U.S. and Europe or Australia or wherever. We should just be talking about really the one percent in those countries um, because they also exploit their own labor populations. So like to say that we can just rise up using the same methods, um, this system has not actually ever proven that it can in a self-contained way, um, you know, through free market principles, it, it is actually built on a lie, is what I'm trying to say. Um, it's never not relied on the exploitation of other people in terms of labor and extraction of natural resources up until this day. And the second point being, like, I think we should just reconsider, we shouldn't allow um, the capitalism, the powers to be, whatever. I'm trying to use like short terms just to capture uh, the modern global economy. You can use whatever term you want. We shouldn't allow that system to define what wealth is for us um, based on a dollar sign value. Uh, You know, Muslim countries are actually extremely wealthy in terms of natural resources, in terms of people and labor and craft skills, in terms of manual labor skills in terms of land, in terms of waterways, um, in terms of, you know, so many uh, other things that might have a lower dollar sign GDP value in terms of modern uh, economic system. But if we look at what, what wealth, like, you know, even el ghani uh, an attribute of God, it means, um, you know, the wealthy. What it, what it actually means, though, literally, is the self-sufficient. And so to, to be rich is not to have um mountains of gold in your backyard but it is to be able to provide for everything you need on your own to be self-reliant and to be faqir and is to be reliant on others and faqir is is usually the word used for poor and that's why all of us are fuqara of allah we all rely on allah but in the material sense on this planet i think we should be thinking about not how we, we can build like usd dollar sign wealth but how we can build self-sufficiency for our communities, how we can produce what we need locally, even if our GDP on the global rankings is not um, comparative to other countries. How can we produce what we need? Why is everything that we do um, going towards actually making other countries richer? Right, like all of Bangladesh's production process is just multiplying the wealth in the UK or the US whenever it's exported. Like, as we rise, we're actually increasing the global wealth gap because we're focusing on replicating certain production patterns where, like, you know, 
Bangladesh is so happy to produce all these textiles for uh, Zara, H&M, and Mango, and every other fast fashion brand. And, you know, maybe Bangladesh as an entire country gets like $5 from each of those shirts. And then Zara takes that shirt and sells it for $120. Like, the the vast majority of the profits from our labor is actually just growing the wealth gap in um, in Europe and the U.S. So, you know, I, I personally, I think that line of thinking is misguided for so many reasons. And what I'd love to see us focus on, you know, in recognition that poverty is an issue, which, by the way, an issue created by... <laughs> the way that we produce in the modern world and the supply chains that have been imposed on us and the colonial legacies of extraction and of labor exploitation that are still in place, the way to break out of that is to break is to break out of it and to build our own supply chains, our own production processes and our own uh, ways of self-reliance and not to focus on like USD, GDP, on global rankings and things like that. Yeah. Absolutely. What you're saying, Iman, actually reminds me very much of something as well I was reading um, a few months ago. Um, it was an article about um, H&M, as you mentioned, and a couple of other um, big uh, fashion retailers who, and, and it was detailing the fact that obviously, you know, we know that there are, that, that, that there are sweatshops and that the labour conditions of people who work for these companies are horrendous. And, you know, many people obviously make the growth argument still, as you say, and other people say, you know, we should boycott them. But it was actually showing how regardless of which option you choose in relation to this company, they benefit both ways. Basically, H&M, they produce 20 seasons a year, 20 different clothing lines every single year, which is insane. You know, there's only 12 months in the year, less than a, in, in less than a month. They have a whole new different clothing range that they are offering to their consumers. What is not bought in Europe by shoppers is then carted off to countries, specifically Rwanda, where it's sold for extremely cheap there, like half the price. And what that does is it undercuts all indigenous Rwandan sellers, all of the people there who are making and selling clothes uh, to their own population, a localized production chain, it undercuts all of that. And so again, still H&M are the ones getting the benefit. Whether the, if the people buy it in Europe and they decide not to boycott because of this growth argument that you've said, Iman, they benefit. And if people stop because yeah, they want to boycott and they think that it's wrong, they're still benefiting. This is not to say therefore we shouldn't boycott. That's not what I'm trying to say. It just seemed to me so insidious the way in which this corporation has structured even their backup plan such that they're still hurting um workers in the global south regardless of whether their their products are bought here or not and i think just when we understand how insidious <laughs> that system is it should really like you're saying make us want to actually break out of that system it's not just about even what we shop for on, on an individual level it's about changing our attitude holistically to the way we shop where should we get our clothes from should it be from somewhere ten thousand miles away or should it be somewhere closer Think about not just, of course, the impact on the environment, but the impact on those people. What are the ethics behind all of those things? It just, what you're saying just really reminds me of our need to kind of approach this whole topic holistically. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just speaking to like secondhand um, clothing trade, because so many of us don't see it. If we live in um, Europe and the US, we might think that the scale is just sort of what we see at our local thrift store. 
So when I tell you guys like mountains and football fields, like thousands and thousands of football fields of mountains of clothing, like there is actually already enough. There's there's so much clothing physically on the planet today that we don't need to buy new clothes at all. Like there's so much, and I see it like. You know, I'm sure maybe if you guys go back home, if you're from immigrant backgrounds, like I see people just walking around the street, like, you know, with a shirt that I saw like 15 years ago in like Abercrombie and Fitch or something when I was growing up. Or I see people like this. It's a global system that even our communities everywhere in the world are now like relying. They're now dependent on that cheap secondhand clothing trade that you were talking about. Um, what would happen if if it were taken away from them? Um, you know, why don't we all like dress that way? Is it because we're we're too obsessed with how we look and being on trend? We don't want to wear clothes that's already like five, ten years old. Um, you know, but if we're talking about physical numbers, like we produce over 150 billion new garments a year as a planet for um, you know seven billion people or however many billion people are on the earth um, within a year half of those garments are discarded within a year I mean the scale of what we produce it just it's just clearly too much it's obvious to anyone who thinks about it like so the idea just makes me laugh that like oh the market self-corrects and the market only produces what there's demand for no there's like manufactured demand like they make us think we need more they make us want more they make their clothes not last long so we buy more they change the trends so we feel out of style if we're wearing something from last year. All of that um, is exactly what you're talking about. A whole system built around um, overproduction and overconsumption. And, you know, it's clear that the system's not going to self-correct and we need to uh, take drastic action. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do with that what you will, <laughs> whatever yeah. drastic action is. <laughs> Yeah. The one thing I want to mention also is that like we're talking about, you know, big corporations and like some of the bad things they do. But to me, like like decent people tend to be decent and crappy people tend to be crappy. So like these corporations that are doing like some of these, like they have like, yeah, bad production practices. They're also like largely run by Zionists. They also produce in like, you know, oil uh, like concentration camps like there's like you the more you search the more like horrific things you find it's because like yeah these are like immoral people running these things i have like no qualms about saying that so i think that like if you follow the breadcrumbs like you'll find a lot more to motivate you to at least like yeah divest and boycott from a lot of these corporations um you know just like on the basis of human decency but back to this conversation about like what it was interesting about what you're saying iman is that i feel like it requires shedding a lot of the logic that um you know that we're just kind of like that is a lot of the assumptions that are made when we talk about economics when it comes to like um like when you start an econ class the base assumption is that you're trying to achieve like maximum production maximum profits efficiency um it's like it's backwards logic to talk about like scaling down being more local just being self-sufficient even though like this is i think a lot what you know people are starting to move towards this but when it comes to you know us having this conversation between ourselves about like yeah how we don't need that much we don't need this much clothing it's another thing to go to this like muslim muslim business owner and be like hey you don't need that like much profit you don't need to produce these many you know products you don't need to sell this stuff that you know even though it's cheaper it comes from this really unethical source um so it requires kind of you know um yeah just like 
reversing a lot of that logic, but I think it's also like the more educated we are about the process itself, um, it really helps us internalize like why the logic is already backwards and why we need to reverse it. Um, so how can we understand more this relationship um, that we've like touched upon, but we really want to like you know talk more about, which is the relationship between exploitative work and capitalism. Um, how do we understand how that takes place and why one is embedded in the other? Yeah, um, I do. I'm want to preface because I'm going to refer to a lot of what people will recognize as Marxist ideas, but I think like. Well, this is a whole other side point, but I think Muslims are way too dismissive of Marxist theory simply because he's like not a religious person. And, you know, we don't do that with so many other thinkers just because they're not Muslim or they may even have been anti-religious, which is debatable in the case of Marx, doesn't mean that they don't have an excellent historical analysis, which I think... uh, Uh, Marx does and we can critique it all day but it's very worth engaging with because it points out I think you know the unique facets of what capitalism has done to global economic trade obviously trade and commerce predate capitalism so the question I think that's useful for people is what is unique about the way our modern economic system is constructed like what is the definitive element of capitalism and um for so many historians, and I really see this in the world, it's the manufactured transition of the vast majority of people from independent, um, either agrarian, landowning workers, uh, farmers, or independent producers, uh, tradespeople, craftspeople, um, from small-scale producers to wage workers. And that manufactured transition involves forcibly removing people from land and from natural resources and centralizing the means of production into the hands of a small um, property-owning class. Everyone else then becomes wage workers. And the key element here is that there's the illusion of choice, right? It's not like slavery, like all of us can technically choose where we want to work, but we can't choose not to work because we don't own any real uh, property or we don't own any real means of production. Means of production would be like land because you can produce, you can grow uh, your own food, you can be a self-sufficient farmer. Means of production would be like a spinning wheel because then you can spin thread, you can sell that on the market. You can, you know, any kind of tool or craft or anything that can produce, you can use with your own labor to produce something that you can then use to support yourself. So the transition in capitalism is a manufactured transition in which the means of production are centralized in the hands of people. So uh, that was like land enclosure movement in the UK is always referred to where people lost access to the public commons. Um, Obviously, we can look at colonization in so many of our countries as a process in which people are forcibly removed from their land and from the means of production are centralized in the hands of factory owners. And so there's an illusion of consent where we can all choose where to work but we can't choose not to work, and we're utterly dependent on the the small class of people who own the means of production. They own all the land and all the tools and all the factories, Um, and they set our wages. And we basically, all we have left is our own bodies to sell our labor to these people. Um, And they can then, you know, uh, create 
astronomical profits off of the labor of the vast majority of people. That's like definitive of what capitalism is. And we see how that has historically happened as a forced transition all over the world. Um, and I think there are three problems with that. There are three aspects of that that lead to inherent injustice. The first being that it um, inherently creates overproduction. So this idea of hyper-efficiency is not actually the wisest allocation of resources. Like when you, like sure, you know, the, the tunic weaver who's manually weaving something on a loom, he can weave maybe one or two rugs a day. Uh, an industrial mill can weave, I mean, uh, dozens if not hundreds of meters of fabric a day. Um, you multiply that scale, you're getting like 10,000 meters of fabric from one mill in one week. That might all that that might be like all the community actually needs from that factory. They could produce everything that we need from them in just one week, but they don't do that. They actually work 52 weeks out of the year and then manufacture demand to meet that overproduction. So inherent to this um, system of industrialization is the problem of overproduction, is the problem of pollution of the world and the problem of overconsumption. And there's uh, no way around it except to actually scale down and to embrace degrowth. De um, the second problem being the balance of power, right? You create a system in which a very, very small group of people completely control what's being produced, what's being consumed, how most of us are surviving, how we're getting our, our wages, what those wages are. And um, that, you know, uh, creates the injustices we've seen all over the world in terms of income inequality, in terms of poverty, in terms of the misallocation of food, the way that, you know, we have the obesity is a problem here in the United States and starvation is a problem in so many other parts of the world. Um, so that centralization of power, that imbalance of power, is an inherent um, facet of uh, injustice in the modern system of capitalism. And the third thing being just personal fulfillment and the vibrancy of local communities. Like one of the things I find so beautiful about the fact that all tunic artisans can work from their homes, they can set their own hours, right? They're not subject to like the nine to nine factory hours they're available to their families. They're available to their local communities. You can stop by their house at almost any hour and you'll, you'll find them there or you'll find them soon to return. Um, you know, when their children need them, they can just get up, stop working and, and like spend time with their children. They're nearby. The, the fact that we have to physically remove people put them on buses and get them to these factories. And I see it, by the way, like their textile, their Zara and H&M factories in Tunisia. So it's a direct, you know, I'm, I'm like, I've like directly tried to pull people from working at those factories to working in our co-op. So I, I see that the, the trade-off, when people can work from their homes, set their own uh, schedules, the vibrancy of local communities is restored. Not like all of the world's labor subject to just a small group of uh, factory owning, means of production owning classes, and they determine what the entire world is doing with our most of our living hours. Um, and the second, the second part of that is just like personal fulfillment. I, I guarantee, if I gave anyone in the world the choice to um, either, for the same wage, either work in a factory and essentially be a machine minder, where you just go around. 
um, making sure the machines are working properly all day long, pressing buttons on computer screens, or I give you the option to sit at a loom and to weave your own fabric with, with your hands and to create something of beauty through your own labor. I mean, all of us have experienced the, the just light that fills your heart when you actually create something that you're proud of and that is beautiful and then you can sell on the market, someone falls in love with and you get a fair price for it. Like, there's nothing that replaces that in terms of personal fulfillment. It is a human need to actually be a producer and a creator and to create beauty in the world and to apply your mind to something, whatever it is, whether it's a physical thing or like a math problem or anything. We find so much pleasure in that. Um, and that is stripped from most of humanity in the capitalist system. We are all just producing whatever we're told and we're all just minding machines um, most of the time. So I know I said I would be brief that's <laughs> no, okay i'm literally yeah, taking notes i'm brief. like this is so good yeah <laughs> <laughs> but uh, i think it's important yeah, no it absolutely iman mashallah you've just explained it so eloquently and so holistically the only other thing that as well i think is so important to think about and, and remember when we are talking about capitalism and exploited and, and exploitation is the way in which it has commodified our labor as you were saying, Iman, that's all we have left to sell. And so that, rather than thinking this is somebody, this is another person, actually the process of commodification ends up stripping you from your humanity and very often leaving you just as a machine, just as a producer, just as a, a manual worker doing you know, a, a task that somebody else could easily do if you decide to say no to the job. And that's why we have, you know, in, in, in countries across the world, we've already mentioned like global supply chains and global value chains. We have this race to the bottom where if somebody doesn't agree to a three pounds an hour wage, it doesn't matter, we'll get somebody else. Ultimately, when the profit motive is reigning supreme and is considered the only rational way for humans to behave. And let's remember that this is another kind of foundational axiom of capitalism, right? That only money speaks, that only money is what is going to move individuals and human beings. And that's the only way to incentivize people. When we have that as the guiding principle, we end up making systems that are based along these exploitative lines that are creating these situations that are damaging people. And like you said, Iman, not actually providing that personal fulfillment, but that's just that's just become the norms. Instead now what we have are people who try and come and they say, oh, you know, this is immoral, this is unethical. And so we have people putting addendums basically on these guiding principles. But the impact of a health and safety law at work is actually very limited when the whole system is constructed to actually deprive you and exploit you of your rights. And one thing that I just love about Tunic, mashallah, is that as well as obviously people owning the means of production, and as you were saying, you know, able to work in their own homes and all of these aspects, is that as well, you know, you're, you're sharing the profits with your workers. And I think the there are huge implications of profit sharing, which, you know, is an Islamic principle, risk sharing and profit sharing, which we don't see talked about enough, although obviously it is mentioned in like the is Islamic finance industry. I mean, this is obviously a big topic and I kind of, we don't have time to, to go into detail, but it's interesting that obviously when you learn about Islamic partnerships and Islamic contracts, there's always an emphasis on this element of profit sharing and risk sharing, as opposed to conventional finance that obviously in the case of a, a mortgage or any other kind of, you know, business partnership, it's, it's, it's the debtor that is bearing all of the risk, right? It's, it's the, the bank is essentially immune to, to a large portion of that. 
And I would really like to see more work from people in that field, thinking about how Islamic principles could make corporations and businesses more ethical by giving their employees a stake in their organization. The way that obviously you have done, but on, you know, for, for, for different other um, produce and things like that as well. That is the kind of thinking that we need to kind of really bring Islamic principles and, and, and really bring in that creativity. Uh, so yeah, I just want to add on to what you both said, and I just want to mention, you know, Iman said the illusion of choice, and that is so important in understanding exploitation and how it is allowed to happen, because exploitation is something that is usually, initially denied, but because of how much profit it brings, it becomes so widespread that, you know, we eventually end up with evidence in the form of images and footage and testimonies, so we can't dismiss the exploitation. So what happens is there is an attempt to shift and twist the narrative now. And we saw in China how, you know, there was a denial of concentration camps initially, and now that's been reframed as, you know, re-education centres. And the sweatshops have become such a widespread phenomenon. And, you know, maybe even the dominant mode of production today, we come to realise that, you know, they are allowed to exist because there are, like, moral defences made for it. And, you know, that sounds so ludicrous because, you know, how do you morally justify exploitation? Because exploitation has negative connotations, but there are definitely people making these uh, defences, especially economists, I might add, but, you know, that's a separate issue. But um, to make sweatshops seem more moral, what they do is they rationalise it by creating um, these binaries of situations that are deemed a lot worse. For example, you know, like if we don't um, employ these very poor individuals in our factories and pay them, then, you know, they'll be on the streets begging and, you know, they might turn to crime and prostitution. So when you frame it like that, you know, it does seem like the better option. And, you know, we're almost doing them a favour, to be fair. And it's like a hint of like a saviour complex there too, um, because we're deciding what, you know, what's best for these people. But it's embarrassing that these binaries are being peddled by, you know, first world countries and multi-millionaire corporations who have the capacity to offer, to offer you know, options outside of this binary. And, you know, we can offer things like paying a livable wage and safe working conditions. Uh, but, you know, we have the capacity to actually transform the very structure and construct, you know, like a world where, you know, these binaries don't even exist. But instead, we choose that, you know, we have to do something and the best we can offer is exploitation. And the second aspect is then whitewashing um, the actual sweatshops, let's say. And this is by, you know, it's done by registering violence only when it's physical. And this is where the illusion of choice comes again. But because these people have consent, um, have you know, they're employed by their own consent and their own choice, and we are not forcing them to work, you know, by gunpoint, then it can't be violent uh, because they've chosen this path. But, you know, they fail to acknowledge that, you know, there's a very structural and political and social, these are conditions that exist that force people into choosing exploitation. And, you know, people are coerced by poverty, but that doesn't count as violent because, you know, it's not like a gun to your head. And essentially, um, this false sense of choice and consent is the only thing that you can use to differentiate um, sweatshop labour and slavery. And consent in these contexts is actually very problematic, though, because it goes beyond just sweatshops. Um, You know, it can be used to justify things like prostitution and sex work. And, you know, because on a very personal level, there is personal consent when you have people who engage in prostitution but you know we know there's like a very systemic thing behind it where there are financial constraints that push people into that and the same way this very gray area of consent has been exploited by the porn industry um this choice to work in sweatshops has been exploited on a mass scale for cheap labor and i'm using the word um i'm using the term sweatshop here because it evokes a very specific imagery um, but the concept is often dressed up in such, in like, in much, in much nicer terms. You know, there's this idea that individuals, when they choose to work, this is them exercising their autonomy. 
and that is something to be celebrated and you know if we actually doubt that we're doubting their rational abilities and you know who are we to do that now right and you know it's also being framed as you know fighting the patriarchy because it is often women who make up the majority of factory workers and this is very empowering because you know they're making their own money and they're not reliant on others but you know very rarely do sweatshop wages afford women like full independence and you know the sad thing is that you know actually may give them some degree of freedom but that is not like a virtue of sweatshops that's just like a failure on our side because you know we have offered nothing better and i, I don't know there was an article i think about a year ago uh, that was either sponsored by or associated with the bill gates foundation but it was talking about child labor in africa this child labor is a direct result of you know an underdeveloped society that you know full of poverty uh but it was saying it was good because it gave them life skills and it's so, like you know these framings and this analysis is so you know it deliberately diverts the attention and is it very um it's very dangerous then because then our boycotts and our bans can be the things that are seen as immoral because you know if we boycott we are stopping these people from earning a living that they have chosen to go into and you know women will lose their jobs and you know are we ready for empowerment if we want these women to lose their jobs and so <clears throat> what happens then is that you know sweatshops become central to the community and the community's supposed development even though um it does nothing for the development in the long term and that is where we have now a justification for exploitation and like there's a lot more to say but you know we look at, at ourselves as quite distant from these violent systems and structures and you know we make excuses for you know why we can't talk ethically or you know who is actually to blame but um you know maybe we don't like the idea of this but you know we still fuel it through our consumerism and moral conduct here is essentially determined by economic laws and as long as we show that there is a demand it can it strengthens the, it strengthens the defense for you know essentially supply and that's that's that leads to exploitation which can be defended on economic terms oh man there's it's frustrating because okay also what you said Iman, about like you know like the marxist language coming in first of all this is a very safe space to be using like marxist economic analysis and also i think we we have to you know like study the works of people who have been criticizing the system that we're a part of which it like comes largely from like marxist and neo-marxist writers um because we are you know we're detailing a lot of problems that um we are saying are a result of capitalism and that if i would if i may would also say our a result of kofur because like denying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and de denying the realities that like that Yemen was talking about in terms of like having a spiritual connection to nature to the things around you to even just like the hours that you spend your day whether you spend them again like pushing buttons on a machine or actually producing something and then you know meeting the person that you sell it to face to face denying all of these things wrapped up in the system of capitalism leads to all the problems that we're talking about but then you do have people saying things like what you mentioned earlier about how like Islam is closer to capitalism. It's capitalism with like zakat thrown in um, and that, you know, capital communism is like straight up kufr and atheism. So how do we, you know, navigate these like <laughs> extreme statements? How do we um, just understand like, yeah, what this whole dichotomy between um, capitalism and communism and also where does Islam fall um, in that dichotomy? I mean, I think just the way you framed the question, Sara. Um, the fact that uh, we had the blessing of um, hearing uh, Amina's take on justification of exploitation just before that, I think gives us all the perspective we need on that question, Yani. The, yeah. It's just a false dichotomy uh, and uh, a false choice. And, you know, 
just designed to scare us into accepting an exploitative system that we really don't have to and that our, our tradition really calls to something much higher and something that's actually good for people and, and beneficial. Yeah, these kinds of statements like Islam is closer to capitalism than communism. Like you said, Iman, I see it all the time on Twitter. And honestly, it just ruins my day, to be honest, when I see this, because I just, I just can't stand to hear it anymore. I mean, obviously, both of these comparisons are wrong. And that's why I think some people do admit that they won't say like, you know, oh, Islam actually is capitalist. Having said that, I have heard even people as well from Muslim podcasts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Saying that I'm a capitalist. I think Islam believes in capitalism. And I'm just like, yeah, are you serious? <laughs> are you serious? I mean, this whole conversation is just so tone deaf. I think that's my issue above above anything else. Because not everybody necessarily has an economics background. And a lot of Muslims, you know, especially those who perhaps talk very um, and, and praise, you know, aspects of communism and socialism, I'm a little bit more inclined to kind of think that, you know, what they're saying is not necessarily wrong. What they're calling for doesn't necessarily contradict Islam. And perhaps them looking to communism or socialism is a result of them not actually having necessarily lived through real socialism or communism. You know, very often when you see Muslims from the 50s and 60s in the Arab world or, you know, in the Balkans or other countries where they actually experience communism, they'll be very anti-socialist, very anti-communist because they saw the problems that that economic system brought. So khair, perhaps people don't necessarily understand the um, problems that were caused by this. And so some people speak very positively about it. Having said that, I don't think most people do. Like, I think people are actually just responding to their frustrations at the current situation that we're in, rather than it being reflective of a deep ideological position. However, the proponents, the Muslim proponents of capitalism, I just find completely unjustifiable in this day and age, because we are witnessing right now the havoc that capitalism and in particular neoliberal capitalism, is wrecking around the world, such that our very survival is at stake because of things like climate change, such that inequality has been worsened for millions of people, such that poverty and deprivation is still a reality. And despite all of this, people go around making comparisons between Islam and capitalism. It's just actually, inshallah, that we are hoping to like have another article about this on, on the Qarween project. But essentially, I think it just stems down to what you were saying earlier, Iman, that, you know, people's definitions are wrong. People think that capitalism is just, you know, free markets. And because Islam believes in free markets, therefore Islam must be must be capitalist. And actually, there are different kinds of capitalism and, you know, Islam can be mixed in with any of them. But this is really just such an illogical leap where you're taking examples of pre-modern free markets without acknowledging Actually, the history of the situation, as you and Amina were talking about earlier, the guild system and some of these specificities to different um, places and different cultural contexts, but also the natural barriers to trade that existed in like the 7th or 8th century, where you in Syria can't decide to suddenly go and sell something to China without taking like a month's long journey plus as opposed to now where somebody in China can undercut local sellers by selling it online in an instant, to completely ignore all of these things and then claim that Islam therefore is supportive of capitalist trade and free market globalization is just, it does not make sense. There's no way it makes sense. And I think as well that some people are just really, again, ignorant of the context in which these conversations are taking place. Namely, as I said, you know, obviously the advent of neoliberalism since the 80s, which 
means different things to different people. But here, let's just talk about it meaning the minimization of like state intervention in the economy and advancing individual economic liberties. But also since the 1990s, the financialization of whole economies in some regards, where ultimately growth is being driven by the financial sector, more so compared to the, than the productive sectors. So when we have Muslims talking about pro-free market policies and Islam is about small governments and businesses leading innovation and Muslims need to take, you know, individuals or, or firms need to take the responsibility to do X, Y, Z and the government doesn't need to provide X, Y, Z. It's actually playing into a much bigger debate in political economy that is having a real impact on people's livelihoods, on entire populations' ability to be prosperous. And we can't just make these statements. It's, it's a very big thing as well to say Islam is in line with something. You know, we can't talk about the deen without knowledge. And perhaps we think we know the deen, but if we don't know the reality and we don't know the context, I think we have to be very careful about things that we allegedly align Islam to and give justification to. Yeah, very well put, Aisha. And we can go on about that forever, I think. And I do look forward to, yeah, like more writing on the subject too. I think, alhamdulillah, Muslims are you know, like waking up to the realities about like, yeah, the, the global economic system, but also like what it, role Islam can play in that and what, you know, how we can provide something that is much more beautiful and more ethical, more beneficial to people. Um, and I hope more people see themselves as, you know, um, playing a role in that because it's clear to see like how literally every single human being is affected by these things, right? Like we all wear clothing, we all eat food, we all breathe the air. Um, but also, women uniquely are affected by this in like some in some particular ways. Amina mentioned some of them in terms of like the types of labor that women are, you know, like supposedly choosing, but again, like more or less coerced into. Um, and also even just within the fashion industry itself, like we talked about how um, like demand is manufactured and we're convinced that we need to purchase certain things that we need to look a certain way and dress a certain way in order to just, you know, like be decent, like members of society. Um so I want to also ask, how how do we as Muslim women um, recognize that, you know, we are targeted by a lot of these things? I think sometimes women are, you know, people try to blame women for participating in things like the fashion industry, not uh, completely ignoring, again, like how companies manufacture a lot of these things, how they manufacture insecurities and how the people around us, even, you know, in our own communities, push those insecurities onto us, which then um, push us to participate in these systems. But then how do we as women kind of disengage from those systems and start to um, just break out of these things that we've unintentionally become a part of? I, I'll try to make this inshallah the practical part because I thinking about what I've said so far, it's been very theoretical. <laughs> I don't want people to get frustrated. I actually um, was just sewing up a hole in a pair of my trousers that uh, I've had for like five years. Um, the amazing thing about this question is that it sometimes seems really difficult depending on the perspective. Um, but then if we if we if we realign our perspective, it's it's actually the easiest thing in the world. And what I mean by that is like, you know, at at a, at a high level in in the, in the West, you have like centers of uh, of like thought and think tanks devoted to like how can we make the fashion industry sustainable um how can we produce clothing in a way that doesn't destroy the planet um you know how can we have a healthy relationship with clothing and you know for us as women 
especially if we maybe come from an, an immigrant background or an indigenous background, or if in some way our people still have like a connection to traditional ways of living, we know how we know how to do this, and we we've we've learned this from our mothers and from you know the the elder women in our family. Like, we need to re- re- just reclaim those ways of living, of sharing clothing with one another, of um, mending our clothes. We need to value those skills and to um, you know see them as the treasure troves that they are. We know how to take care of things, um, and we just need to reclaim those those you know fountains of knowledge and preserve them before they disappear that's like one of the amazing things like when i spend time with artisans i really just realize kind of how just like dumb we are or I, I feel really dumb like i feel like i just don't know how to do anything i don't know how to like hand wash my own clothes i don't know how to sew i don't know like i don't know where things come from i don't know how different materials work like what's different about wool and, and silk or cotton or what all of these things, like there's these ways of just knowing how to live and how to uh, do things for yourself with your hands and, and make things work. And all of those things are actually surprisingly, not surprisingly, <laughs> the most sustainable way to live, the most economical, you know, affordable way to live and the most fulfilling way to live in terms of actually having a meaningful relationship with all the objects that are in your home and with your local community sharing your clothes uh, mending your clothes um so you know we like i don't want to frame it in terms of how do we disengage in terms of a negative uh way you know how do we re-engage with the ways that um women in our communities know how to live their lives as women and how to have a beautiful like we can have beautiful things and we can embrace femininity and we can have like sparkly clothing and whatever we might want we can have beauty in our lives um in a holistic way uh we just need to reclaim those skills those those fountains of knowledge and and wisdom that we come from and that indigenous communities all over the world continue to preserve um, and, and see those as really the treasure troves rather than whatever book on sustainable fashion, you know, Harvard is publishing this year. The thing about being unskilled is such a, it's a really good point, especially because my family actually are really good at sewing and they're really in that, you know, that industry. <laughs> but I never learned that and that's terrible. But, you know, you know, if like more um, ethical fashion, it is expensive. And it's not to say it's unaffordable for us, everyone, but it is expensive. And to convince my grandmother to purchase something for like a hundred pound would be a bit. Mm. But you know, if I told her, you know, I'm sewing it myself and I want to make something myself, that is seen a lot more. She, she, you know, she'll respect that a lot more because you know you are. You know, it's like a skill set, and you're right. There's something we need to honor, and we need to stop outsourcing everything to other people, or you know, just relying on other people. And you know, it's there's some un- some habits that we have to unlearn like you know it's not normal for our clothes to like tear apart after a few months and again for my grandmother she has clothes from when she was 20 years old and she's like i don't know like 70 and she still has them in great condition and it's a thing about respecting what you have and also going for things that are you know um good quality and that's something uh again in the muslim um halal fashion scene quality is not something that is always honored and that would be in prehistoric pre-islam you know in old old olden times um quality was something that was of the utmost importance but now it's very much just how it looks and i feel like it's a very interconnected thing because someone you know i like fashion a lot and also what inspires me is social media and tv 
but you know I found that the last year of it's been pretty busy and it's just um I've not been you know I haven't kept up with it and you know when you're more distant from stuff like that you're less um you don't have that desire or that need to keep up with friends anymore and you know um I feel like it's these little changes that you make um you know and slowly that you know it's the little changes that will come together and if you do it on a communal level I feel like it'll make a difference inshallah yeah inshallah I want to go back to something that I think okay I think a lot of people said it but I think you were saying it as well Sara in terms of balancing like our personal accountability with kind of just cussing like corporations right balancing kind of recognizing what we can do and what are troubling systems and this was actually something that um I realized um before the pandemic when I was when I was at university I was in a seminar on data protection and it everybody was talking in the seminar about how look at all of our data is going to companies and you know people are consenting to this on social networks blah 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 and how do we stop this and so I mean I consider myself a pretty systemic person but I was like okay look in the short run this isn't nothing's going to change people need to start taking the personal responsibility and stop you know signing up for these platforms stop giving your data away just say okay there's another new you know social media trend um new app that everybody's downloading if it's got problematic data restrictions i'm not going to go on it i'm not going to sign away my data and literally no one in the seminar accepted this idea of mine everybody was like it's not going to work it's not going to work people are going to want to if you incentivize them by saying that you can connect you know registering what food you eat to your life insurance and the cost of your life insurance goes down everybody's going to do that like you know if people can connect their cars to their car insurance app and see how how, how good they drive and lower the, co- the cost of their premiums everyone's going to do that this isn't going to work we just need legislation and i was surprised because very often in commun- in conversations in the muslim community people are often like oh we need to change ourselves and i'm like yeah that's so true but you know what we also need to be active and support this change or we need you know muslim leaders to understand this or we need you know systemic change about that and this was a complete reversal and suddenly i was the person who was like we need to have individual change and nobody else was accepting it and i realized later that actually you know this understanding that obviously stems from islam that we are going to be accountable for what we could have done what's in our capacity allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us to do what's in our capacity because we're going to be accountable for that there is some small action that we have to take even if we can admit that the problem is much bigger than us even if we can admit that the system is biased against us we need to like have that balance and again, I know I've been saying every single time, tunic is amazing because of this, tunic is amazing because of that, but mashallah, it really is. But I, I really see that as like this perfect middle point where, you know, you're challenging the system by bringing an organization, by bringing a cooperative and, and, and a supply system that directly provides an alternative to the systems that we're looking at. Um, and it's also something where we need to now take the responsibility in order to shop from from there or pl- other places that we know are providing more ethical or more localized approach to 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 production and consumption so i think that obviously you know in terms of what we can do everything starts from knowledge gaining awareness of all of the problems that obviously iman alhamdulillah has given her time so generously today to explain to us the problems in the fashion industry the problems with overproduction and overconsumption generally and then inshallah taking that action in the areas that we can is is really important but one other thing that i think you know i would like to see just change as well is something that happened last week that i was just like i knew we were going to be recording the podcast and i was like oh my god this is a bit of a shame 
I mean, this for me really reflects where our where our attitude needs to grow as a community. Where obviously in the aftermath of everything that was going on in Gaza and the bombardment and everything, um, people have been very, you know, up to date with everything that's going on in Palestine and very conscious of who's saying what. And I think it was a model, a, a model, a Palestinian model in the US who was like contacted by the head of, of Zara, the CEO of Zara, the head designer, there you go, who made like, you know, very anti-Palestinian comments and very, um, you know, very just like completely offensive Zionist propaganda rubbish. Yeah, they'd said that. And so after that, obviously, you know, the, those responses were shared and everybody was like, oh my God, boycott Zara. I'm never going there again. How dare this head designer say that? And I was like, okay, alhamdulillah, it's great. You know, we all care about Palestine and we're taking action against people who um, are, are spreading that kind of propaganda and have those opinions. But you know, we've known for ages that Zara is using the Uyghur forced labor in East Turkestan. Why is that not enough to motivate people? And I'm not trying to say that, you know, some people care about more causes than others. I think that there's an awareness issue, but generally people, you know, they, they, they have affinity and they have love for anyone who is suffering. And of course, all Muslims who are suffering. I think that because that is cast, the East Turkestan issue when the labor camps are cast as a production, you know, like, oh, it's an unjust kind of labor standards issue. There's, people just don't care about it more as opposed to, you know, a political issue, which is about colonialism and about all of this stuff far more blatantly that people are more willing to, you know, turn around after that and say, yes, we're going to boycott Zara. That for me needs to change. We should have seen that response when the when we heard about Zara using forced labor in East Turkestan and take a stand against an actual, I mean, aside from the fact that it's a literal and cultural genocide, take a stand for the fact that these are unjust practices. How come we wear clothes that are made by people who are who are trapped and who are being deprived of every single right under the sun, including their right to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Um, that is something that inshallah, I hope that, you know, through awareness like um that we've hopefully been doing today and through initiatives like doing it inshallah we can we can see that change inshallah i mean yeah you know i really appreciate like the arc of this conversation because we started talking about um kind of like yeah the back amen's background tunic like actual steps that she took and then talking about like this broader backdrop to the whole conversation talking about the global economy about fast fashion about capitalism and communism and then bringing it back to okay but here we are as individuals what do we do next um and i i really appreciate the reminders that you guys gave and also i would just add that like sometimes it's not about okay where do i consume now it's just i don't need to consume as much i don't need to buy more clothes i can cut back um, and it's it's really it, like I think it has more to do often with social pressure than like actual needs when it comes to like the things that we're consuming. Um, and sometimes it feels like, yeah, you know, are we really going to convince people to stop? Um, and social pressure can take place like a positive social pressure can take place on a very small scale um, when it comes to, you know, even just like among your group of friends, like it becomes a thing where we're like, oh, no, we're not going to go to Starbucks. Like, screw that. Like, we're going to go to this other place, you know, so we can make these like positive um, we can change mindsets, both our own and then, you know, slowly our families and our group of friends. Um, so may Allah give us tawfiq to improve, um, you know, in our own day-to-day -day actions to be positive impact. May Allah give you success, Iman, in your endeavors um, and give success to Tunic and preserve and protect and reward all of the people who are part of that beautiful production process um, and all of their families. Um, I just want to finally ask you, Iman, to tell us um, where we can keep up with you and with Tunic on social media. If people want to find out more, if they want to visit the website, where can they go? Um, yeah, oh, thanks, guys. I think uh, 
I'm on I'm on Twitter. I'm not I'm so much on anything else at Iman Masmoudi. Are we gonna put it in maybe the description yeah, or something? We'll put it all so in I don't show. need to spell it. No, um, and then we're all, tunic is on everything with the same handle at tunic underscore official and it's tunic with a q people are like why where is there a q <laughs> just for fun so it's tunic with a tunic underscore official and the website is tunicoasis.com okay awesome um thank you to everybody who listened and kept up with the conversation we also would love to see what people think if they have anything to add um go ahead and let us know in the comments or in replies on social media um please keep us in your dua and keep iman in your dua and her family as well um jazakum khairan for listening wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh